I actually think we are losing when it comes to the international arena. We look at what's happening in the Middle East, and the whip hand today uh, goes to Russia and goes to Turkey. It is the week of January 27th, and welcome to Episode 10 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have our usual cast of suspects, Dana Struhl, former senior staff member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, the founder of the National Security Institute and and its executive director. He is also the former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jody Herman, former staff director of the same committee, and I'm Lester Munson, senior fellow at NSI and also the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So today uh, we're talking about Russia. We're talking about Vladimir Putin. Uh, Vladimir Putin's been in, in power in Moscow for 20 years. Earlier this month, he announced a bunch of proposed changes to the Russian constitution that has set off a flurry of uh, speculation about what his future is, what the future of Russia is. Uh, some people saw him strengthening his grasp on power. Others saw him positioning himself for 2024 when his, the current term limits would end his tenure as president. And some have even speculated that he might be willing to share power with others in Russia in a more uh, diverse and egalitarian approach to, to governing in that country. So, Jamil, What's going on here? What's, uh, what's Putin's real agenda? Is there a possibility that there could be a, a new dawn of pluralism dawning in Russia? Yeah. No. No? No. Explain. Vladimir Putin is simply trying to consolidate power as he looks to uh, leaving office or leaving the office of the presidency um, here in 2024. Uh, we know Vladimir Putin's already sort of done the, the prime minister presidency dance uh, with Dmitry Medvedev. Uh, previously, uh, they sort of negotiated a deal where he would be able to come back into office, notwithstanding the term limits in the Russian Constitution. Um, and now, having that having run its course, he's now setting himself up to uh, take another position, either as the head of a party in parliament, in the state Duma uh, in, in Russia, or uh, to run this newly empowered uh, state council uh, that he's given additional authority to. What's interesting is he's doing it a little bit ahead of time, right? So we're a little ways out. Um, and so the question is, is who's he going to put in place in these offices, right? How will we ensure they remain loyal to him? Um, he's also uh, put in place a new prime minister um, who's a, you know, tax bureaucrat. Uh, remember, uh, Vladimir Putin himself was once a not-so-well-known bureaucrat, um, admittedly coming out of the KGB. Um, but, uh, but you know, Boris Yeltsin didn't think Vladimir Putin was going to be a huge problem for him, and... Uh, here we are today, and so we'll see what, what, what we find out about this new uh, this new prime minister. But what what is happening here is an effort by Putin to continue to consolidate, maintain power, um, and he's got the oligarchs behind him. So because he created them, Jody, what do you, what do you you agree with Jamil on this one? I hate to agree with Jamil, yes. but I agree with Jamil. Uh, it seems likely that we're not seeing the entire game board yet that uh, that Vladimir Putin has lined up uh, in his head, and now maybe actually in actuality uh, as well. Clearly a way for him to consolidate power. I'm not quite sure what that will look like yet. And then possibly to give himself like a top coat of democratic legitimacy. So I think the other thing to note here is the opposition isn't buying it, right? So he may be taking these steps uh, leading up to 2024. The opposition isn't buying it. There has uh, been significant, you know, signups to this, this – uh, 
petition online, and that follows months of protests uh, in Moscow itself, particularly huge protests over the summer uh, based on the rigging of the Moscow uh, City Council elections. So we'll see how this plays out. Clearly, he's trying to to line it up, but uh, I don't think the opposition will let him just walk away with it. Dana? I think we know how this plays out. Putin is an authoritarian, and he can play with the trappings of democracy, that there's some sort of legislature or parliament, that there's some sort of body, there's the Duma, he can shuffle cabinet positions around, they can talk about elections and constitutional timelines, just like we see out of the authoritarian playbook in country after country after country right now. So the trappings or the exercise of democracy by giving a big speech, the veneer of accountability, of responsiveness to the electorate or the people. But Putin has systematically pulled the rug out from under his opposition. He's either disenfranchised them, arrested them, detained them, tortured them. It's not as if there's free media, free civil society. Any of the the checks and balances you would see in an actual democracy do not exist in Russia. So I think for certain this is this is an authoritarian who is moving things around to preserve his power. And you just need to look at all the people around him. It's the same guys, the same elite capture, the same interest in preserving the trappings and spoils of the Russian state for for the top one percent so the duma the lower house of the duma passed putin's proposed reforms unanimously shocker it's a shocker like three days after they were that's like like all of these elections and all these authoritarian countries where it's like 98 percent. that would be like less us introducing a constitutional amendment here on monday and agreeing to it on Thursday. So this so this seems like it's very instructive for us. This is what real authoritarianism looks like. It does it does kind of give you pause when people say that certain individuals in the United States are authoritarians. Hey, here's what one actually looks like. Here's how the process works, folks. You announce reforms and they're voted unanimously through the parliament. That does that doesn't happen here. That's never going to happen here. So this it is instructive for us, is it not? I, I certainly, but it also, you know, is worth saying that, you know, the, the president, this is who we're talking about, right, has Which president are we talking the about? The current president uh, has repeatedly, of the United States, has repeatedly sort of noted how much he admires the maneuverings of President Premier Xi, right, uh, and or President Xi and President Putin, and so you know President yes. Sisi, yeah, right, President exactly. Erdogan, right. It is how did how did Nicholas President Maduro, Duterte, how did Nicholas Maduro miss this opportunity by Seriously. the way in Venezuela? How come how come Trump doesn't love <laughs> But Sorry. but look, I mean, look. So yes. I have an answer for you, Les, but right, I'll keep to, it to myself. You're right. The, the the Senate and the House are not likely to pass any type of constitutional amendment along the lines that Jody's talking about. But I think, I dare say, our Democratic colleagues in the room might argue, and we'll see if they do, might argue that what we're seeing taking place in the Senate with this impeachment trial uh, may be an indication of the same, right? Maybe they won't. Maybe they won't. So let's let's segue uh, to kind of the next logical question here, which is what? how should the United States be reacting to these changes in Russia? Do we uh, – should we be talking about uh, rule of law, real constitutional reform, limitations on power, separations of power? Is there is there anything that we can do in this environment that could impact the process in Moscow? Right. So first I want to say we're presently slightly distracted – in this country. Uh, and it, I, I say that like half jokingly, but it's kind of true, right? I mean, we have some things going on domestically that have taken our eye off uh, 
the Foreign Relations National Security Ball and and all of the other balls. Are you saying we're all going to have to read being. John Bolton's book before we do anything else? That could be true. Well, but I already read about it in the New York Times. Oh. But we're distracted. I think Jody's point is a really important one. We're distracted because the Russians made us distracted. They wanted to create this discord that we're now seeing in our society, right? Putting each other, Republicans and Democrats, at each other's throats, creating this impeachment debacle, right? And we're distracted from foreign policy, and they are, and as a result, they are winning. This is so, a so, very. So are they? Do, do, I don't do, do, think do, they're do, winning. Did Putin I, announce it now because of impeachment? Because he knew the U.S. No, was distracted. No, I don't think so. I think, that, I think that over. I think that overstates it. Nor do I think that we're losing. There are clearly things that Russia is trying to do: intervention in the U.S. elections. Clearly, they intend to proceed along those lines again in the November elections. That is a high priority. I don't think that they're winning. I don't think. That, you know, they're making, you know, he's what most of what Putin does is for his own internal control within Russia. It is not entirely as much as we might want to think it is. It's not at all entirely directed at the United States. So I'll just add here because Les's question was, how should the U.S. react? So the first thing is we should never stop talking about the rule of law. We should never stop talking about resiliency and, and transparency and accountability in actual democratic institutions with checks and balances. Um, we should never stop speaking up in support of civil society, yeah. free media, and a credible opposition. So in this case, Navalny, other brave Russians who are willing to take to the streets, challenge their government, expose corruption, we should be continued to do whatever we can do to support them. And then in terms of broader U.S. policy towards Russia, sanctions architecture, trying to push back on, on Russian disruption across the world, at the U.N., in the Middle East, wherever it is, we should continue to do what we can to isolate and push back on Russian aggression. So basically, nothing should change. If anything, we should get our own house organized to be mo- more coherent totally in that you. approach. Embarrassingly, I totally agree with you. Jamil. Yeah, I think Dana is 100% right. We absolutely need to talk about these things. We need to talk about the things that make us different and special. You know, today we have this big discussion about what's going on in China and the surveillance they conduct and, and the surveillance the U.S. government conducts as though there's some sort of, you know, equilibrium between the two or some, some level of equality between the two. The Chinese government, the Russian government, when they engage in surveillance or other measures against their own people, they're not doing it under a system of rule of law. We have a very different system. We should be proud of that and call that out and talk about, while you may have problems with the U.S. system and it may not be perfect, it is certainly better than these other systems. Now, all that being said, I do want to take issue with something Jody said, which is this idea that we're not losing when it comes to Russia or others, maybe. You know, I I actually think we are losing when it comes to the international arena. We look at what's happening in the Middle East and the whip hand today uh, goes to Russia and goes to Turkey. Right? They are the influential powers in that region because we have we have walked away from that problem. It, similarly, I'm not saying Jamil that there aren't tactical things that they are doing that have them winning this battle and that battle. What I'm saying is, at the end of the day, we are still the morally superior country. We are still the country where people, you know, hold us up to a certain standard. They have a belief in our system of values, liberty human rights, et cetera, right? It's very easy uh, as an immoral actor with no scruples to win this little battle and win that little battle. You don't see lots of people emigrating to Russia, right? In fact, Russia has the opposite problem. They have a massive demographic demographic problem, low birth rates combined with massive brain drain, right? They're losing population at a steady rate. Like, so I think if you look on the horizon, long-term horizon, it's hard for me to say that they're winning. All right. Let's, let's, let's get into kind of our next topic here, which is, which is the U.S. policy approach to Russia. And, and, you know, all of President Trump's rhetoric aside, and I realize that's saying a lot, the U.S. has actually 
taken under his – in his administration a fairly tough line on Russia. There have been any number of sanctions imposed uh, over election meddling, over human rights issues and other things. There could, there's more. You know, Congress is contemplating more. But the, the administration has taken a fairly tough line. The administration provided uh, lethal weapons to Ukraine, which was definitely not in the Russians' interest. There's a, uh, we've uh, basically facilitated in Syria a battle between Turkey and Russia that uh, both sides are very much regretting right now. So you could you can make the case that President Trump has been, despite his rhetoric, which is kind of the opposite of his rhetoric, has been pretty tough on Moscow. Is that the right approach? Has that produced good results? To your point, Jamil, Russia remains uh, ascendant in a lot of these marginal places around the world. In Venezuela, Russia's helped prop up Maduro, much to Trump and the rest of the U.S. government's chagrin. We're promoting uh, Guaido, the legitimate president of Venezuela. Maduro is holding on to power in part because of Russian support. The Russians are mucking around in uh, Syria and all over the place. It's, a, it's highly cost-effective, whatever its other qualities may be. So is, has our approach actually worked? This kind of sanctions, criticism, that kind of thing. Dana, why don't you go first? So first of all, in general, the the point of sanctions or um, other punitive measures is to change behavior. So the objective should be to change Russian behavior and seek areas where we might be able to cooperate, whether they're big issues like climate change or little issues like ending civil war and conflicts. With Russia right now, I also – we should take a step back. National defense strategy talks about great power competition. When people in Washington talk about great power competition, they generally are talking about China and Russia. I think those are two totally different powers to put Russia with its brain drain, lack of economic uh, veracity, um, eroding institutions, very different challenge to our interests than China. Um, but nevertheless, Russia is a disruptor all over the world to whatever we're intending to achieve. I, I don't think that sanctions should not have been imposed, but in terms of actually changing Russian behavior or changing Putin's decision-making calculus, I don't see that happening. And number two, the other um, line of effort when you're imposing sanctions is, is you need allies and partners. And what what the current administration has not done, even though they have imposed sanctions, and I would argue that it's not something – that Trump has actually wanted to do, but because of bipartisan consensus on pushing back against Russia in Congress, you've actually had the administration following legislative... I'll, I'll, I'll concede Congress has pushed the administration, but the administration has in the end largely gone willingly. The the administration came out against Nord Stream 2, which was something the Obama administration didn't do. There have been, there have been any number of places where Trump has been tougher on Russia. Uh, Jamil, you're shaking your head and you're going to, and you, you will answer for that shortly. Uh, but this administration has actually been tougher on Russia than the previous. And they, and because of the rhetoric, you don't see that. Now, could it be tougher? Uh, probably. Jamil, jump so, in. So I will grant you, the administration has been tougher against Russia than the prior administration. But that's like saying, you know, you're you know you're 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 slightly better than the last guy, right? Great, right? This this administration has not been nearly as tough on Russia to the extent they have been tough on Russia. They've been tough on Russia because Congress is pushing. I think Dan is exactly right on that front. Now, there are little places here and there, Nord Stream, but too little, too late. It doesn't matter now to be against Nord Stream because it's a done deal. It's the game is up on that front, right? On the issue of, you know, this pitting Russia against Turkey. I mean, come on. 
we have we have we have run tail between our legs from the Middle East, with the exception of this recent interaction with Iran, which was the right thing to do. We should be doubling down on that, right? The president's ready to back out of back out of out of Iraq, back out of Afghanistan, and these are things that are wins for the Russians, right? Not to mention our our discussion in Asia about potentially pulling out South Korea. All the things the administration has done have, you know, to our earlier discussion about are we winning or losing or are we better or are we worse off, right? At a time when our enemies are not afraid of us and our allies are not confident in us, right, which happened a lot during the last eight years in the prior administration and has continued to happen in this administration, it is a concern. There are some allies, to be sure, that are more confident in us. We saw the deal of the century announced yesterday, right? So there are some one allies. Ally, one, one ally. ally many, is more confident. Too many hallelujahs. All right. So I have a little bit of a different tack than both of you on this sanctions issue. Uh, and Jamil, you, you, I'm hoping you agree with me because you were there at the time when we started writing some of these sanctions following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is these sanctions aren't like Iran sanctions. Like the Iran sanctions we drafted to basically to provoke action, but by crashing the Iranian economy, right? So the Russia sanctions were actually more punitive than they were anything else. They were a shot across the bow to tell Russia that we were really unhappy about a series of things that they'd done, the invasion of Ukraine, the poisoning of Sergei Skirpal, uh, uh, their human rights activities within the country. Like these would never, our Russia sanctions have never been set up to do what our Iran sanctions do. And I think it's really important that we keep that uh, in mind. These were about us not sending positive signals and about us kind of backing off the relationship at that point in time. I do want to point out one thing, though. The thing that drives Vladimir Putin more crazy than anything else are the Sergei Magnitsky and Global Magnitsky sanctions that Congress enacted. These are sanctions that were really different than anything else we've done, and that when we passed them, people thought that they were a lesser sanction. They weren't a state sanction. They're individual sanctions. They, They imposed visa bans and asset freezes against bad individuals doing bad things. And they've been more impactful than almost anything else we've done because it turns out that there are a lot of people who bank internationally who want to send their kid to school in New York City. And it is no fun to be a big player on the world stage if you can't go anyplace or spend your money anyplace or go on vacation or send your kid to school in New York. And, and you know, actually, you actually make a really great point, Jody. And, I, you know, I was skeptical of the Magnitsky sanctions when we first put them in place for the same reasons you just laid out. Um, and I do much prefer our much more aggressive approach to Iran. And sometimes I wish that we would take that approach to countries like Russia and, frankly, to China at times. Now, I recognize that's playing nuclear war in some sense, in, in an economic sense. But it's the right thing to do when it comes to certain issues. And in particular, I think there's a real opportunity when it comes to China, just to take us back to an issue we talked about a few weeks back, uh, to use the Magnitsky tool to go after the human rights abuses that we're seeing in, in, in Xinjiang, in Xinjiang yeah. right? So I think there's a real opportunity here uh, for Democrats and Republicans, this administration and, and, and the Democrats in the House to come together on at least one issue uh, where we're united and can find common ground and really utilize that tool that we that, that Congress provided. Them. Sanctions are a scalpel tool, right? So you have to look at the country and the specific circumstances in that country. Like Magnitsky sanctions work really well in Russia. They don't work on North Korea because North Korea doesn't keep a lot of international bank accounts and they're not sending their kids to school in New York. But China does, and China loves sending their students to the U.S. Exactly. That could be really painful. Now, they're going to take it out of us in another way, but we have to be willing to withstand withstand that. And that's part of what I worry about when it comes to China uh, is that this economic deal might, might take some of the national security issues off the table. Uh, human rights issues off the table. I'm All right. So about if that. we're if we're talking about an alternative approach to the Russian challenge, 
why don't we think about the Iran example? Why shouldn't uh, our, our sanction, yeah, the Iran model? Why shouldn't we be pr- pursuing that kind of approach? I, I Jody Jamil, part Daniel, of it is, I think, about the economic integration of the Russian economy with Europe, and and that it, it, as you design the sanctions architecture and sanctions policy, you want to make sure you have allies and partners to enforce those sanctions. So it's a very different economic context. Jody Jamil as so, the primary authors, yes. natural gas, yeah, so. Yeah, and energy. Part and parcel that the Iran sanctions are a great example. They were easy for us, really hard for the EU. We had no economic relationship with Iran, so it didn't hurt us at all. Russia's just not the same case. Both the United States and certainly the EU has huge billions of dollars in annual investments uh, in Russia. Uh, it's not clear that that's actually a step that would be in, in anybody's interest. You know, we, do, we, don't, we don't talk about the Germans nearly enough. Right. Our, our, mm. our policy during the Cold War was as much to keep the Russians out of Europe as it was to keep the Germans at, in, in the Western alliance. One of the things that's going on right now is Germany is inching closer and closer to Russia, right? Uh-huh. You're seeing the UK maybe move away from Europe and towards the United States, but we're also seeing Germany move towards Russia. No one seems to have an idea about how to pull them back in our direction. That seems like a critical function. Is there, is there some way to do that? Through sanctions policy or other means, we're, we're kind of ignoring this uh, this real problem we have. The last you see that is, is largely an economically driven issue, right, that the German economy is more integrated east. I mean, it's integrated in Europe, too, but it also sees tremendous amounts of de- economic development potential in to, to its east. Well, they, they need the energy resources in Russia. Yeah. They Germany won't do nuclear anymore. Right. So they're, they're kind of pushing themselves in part to the east, but we're not doing anything to change yeah. their minds, right? The more the, the, our kind of crazy politics and, and kind of schizophrenic policy approach to Europe is pushing the Germans eastward, we should be pulling them westward. And I guess... Here's where we say this is a podcast about Russia policy, so it's not going to be about European policy. But I think we'd also have to talk about the domestic political context in a lot of these countries in Europe right now where right-wing parties are on the rise that do have an affinity for Putin authoritarian models of governance, et cetera. Um, And at times, I think there's echoes of that in our own political debate here. All right. So let's talk about our own political debate here and the difference between the two parties on the Russia question. You go back to the Obama administration. Mitt Romney ran against the president in 2012. He said, Russia's our biggest geostrategic challenge. That was poo-pooed by Obama and his supporters in Congress. Now we've got a Republican president who says nice things about Vladimir Putin, much to everyone's surprise and amazement. Uh, He's been doing it for years. Republicans go along with that a little bit. I think there are more and more younger Republicans who actually may believe that. But the the majority of Republicans in Congress seem to be very skeptical of Russia. So where's the, you know, we kind of flip back and forth a little bit between, depending on who's in the White House, what's the what's the difference between the two parties on the Russia question? Jamil. I mean, look, I'm not sure there is that big a that big a difference in part because what we saw at the beginning of this this administration right which which we saw bipartisan unity in fact bipartisan unity that resulted in sanctions uh, where the president had very limited if any waiver authority right so I'm not sure there's a lot of disagreement uh, between the parties on this question I think what's making it challenging for Republicans is where the president is at least you know publicly and then the, the things he says publicly again as you point out maybe it's different than the administration's policy or not right Um but I think at the end of the day, you know, on issues like China and Russia, the parties are actually pretty lined up. Now, there are, you know, there are dynamics at the edges of both parties, 
right? Um, but I think they're pretty well lined up. And everybody underneath President Trump in the executive branch is in full alignment on the threat that Russia poses to the international global order, to the United States, et cetera. And a great example for those nerds who spend time watching congressional hearings, who we love. <laughs> right, those nerds, um, would be John Sullivan, who was the now the ambassador to Russia, who testified as part of his nomination in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and was asked over and over by members on the committee who was responsible for interference in our in our um, 2016 election and a variety of other questions about Russian aggression across the world. And you don't hear any of these officials say that Russia is not a problem, that we should not be pushing back on Russia, that they don't support continued sanctions on Russia, etc. Okay, but we did see Secretary of State Mike Pompeo say just a few days ago, yes, he's going to take a hard line on Russia, but he's also looking for areas where the U.S. and Russia can collaborate going forward. He said it out loud. He said it in public. It does – it's a little more policy bones on some of the stuff that the president has been saying. What do we think of that? I, I don't know that that's such a departure from past administrations, right? I mean, the, Russia is a big country and it is a nuclear weapons state, right? So aside from the economic investment issues, right, we've had a long history of reaching – arms agreements with Russia, old start, new start, new start's going to expire in 2021. I don't, I think we'd all want to be in a position where we're, where we're able to strike a new new start uh, agreement with Russia. I just, I just don't think this issue has changed so much, right? This isn't a small isolated country. It's not North Korea. It's not Iran. It's Russia. Jamil. Look, I mean, I, I find it hard to believe that this administration is really going to do anything effective against Russia. Um, and to the contrary, I think that what Secretary Pompeo said is, is that they're looking for places to collaborate, right? And and and, and Joe is exactly right. Look, the Bush, you know, President Bush looked into Vladimir Putin's soul and saw somebody he could work with sort of infamously. Uh, you know, uh, President Obama sort of whispered in an aside to uh, President Putin uh, that he'd have more leeway I think after was, the election. I think, it was, I think it was to somebody, it was to Medvedev to someone else. But Fair I understand enough. what you're saying. Point being, right, you know, sort of, look, I, I'll have more flexibility to work with you guys, right? Um, and so so Jody's right. It's not that different. That being said, I'm not sure that I agree with Jody that, that Russia's all that important to deal with. Yes, they're a nuclear power, no doubt. But their economy is a train wreck. Yes, it's tied into, you know, inherently with the, with the European economy. But, you know, they're a, they're a one-trick wonder, right? Oil, 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 right? Natural gas, really, right? And and we're we're up and coming in that area. We're we're dominating the world. We're leading the world in oil exports. Uh, the world's largest export uh, export of oil by a substantial margin at this point. Um, you combine us in Canada, and we are equal to Russia and Saudi Arabia combined. I mean, that those numbers are amazing if you think about it. And a huge change from just 2012. So, I guess the point is, we don't need to really play footsie with Russia if we want to do this right. And yet, every okay. president in modern right. history has now, done it. Now I'm going to challenge you because. With your own words, in fact, you know, Russia is challenging us around the world in any number of places. Venezuela, Syria, Georgia, Ukraine, in at least two places in Ukraine. And Libya. Uh, every international body. Every international body. They're, uh, they're executing their enemies abroad. They're uh, fomenting dissent in different places. And they're doing it with an economy that's roughly the size of Mexico's. It's like Mexico with nuclear weapons. Right. How how are we how are we with an economy more than ten times bigger than Russia's and a military industrial complex that is bigger than the rest of the world's combined 
unable to deal with this challenge more successfully. Why why can't we do better? No, but, that, but your point is exactly my point, which is why should we play footsie with them? Why do we have to make nice with them? Let's just challenge them directly and win that. We can win it on every what, what front. What does that mean to you, challenge them directly? I don't understand what you mean by that. We should not be allowing Russia to dominate the Middle East, right? They've never played a significant role in Middle East policy in the modern era until just recently, right? We've allowed that to happen. We've allowed Russian interference in our elections to divide us as a country and take us off the world map, right? We are letting this happen to us. We are creating the conditions that allow Russia to be resurgent, right? It is not a country that should be resurgent, nothing about their economy or their military strength other than the fact they have nuclear weapons. So what's right? your – all right, well, I, I, get, I get where you're going, but be specific. What would we do differently in the Middle East? What would we do differently in Venezuela? What should we be doing differently in Ukraine or in Georgia? What's, the, what's a different answer to the Russian challenge? I, I mean, I get rhetoric aside, the, the Trump administration has been very similar to the Obama administration, which was very similar to the Bush administration. We have a presence abroad. We are demonstrating global leadership. You can argue on the margins that some of the rhetoric is terrible, and I would certainly agree with probably what you would say on that. But basically, our guys are in the field, boots on the ground. We're in harm's way. We're challenging Russia around, uh, you know, around the globe. But we still seem to be on the losing end of the stick. Why is that? What what would you change? On day one of of this administration, <laughs> of the Jamil Jaffer administration, the Jaffer on day one of the Trump administration, what we should have done. And you on day he said one, regime. How many people have to be impeached and removed before we you get to you? And on and on day one of the next administration, whether it's whether it's Donald Trump or one of the Democratic candidates, the first thing we ought to do is planes should take off. Cargo planes should take off from every military base in the United States, headed to Eastern Europe and to Asia for our allies with military equipment to demonstrate that in Asia we will stand up to China, we will not let our allies be bullied, and in Eastern Europe we will we will also not allow our allies, allies to be bullied. We should have reversed the, the 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 incursion into Ukraine. That was a failure of the prior administration. Is a failure of this wow. administration to not reverse it here, right? And yes, I will admit the Bush administration that I served in should have handled Georgia differently. Agreed, right? No question, right? So you don't can... think, Jamil, that the American public is going to have an issue with the United States taking on Russia head-to-head not in a military conflict over Ukraine not, or Georgia? To be clear, not troops. We should have sent tanks and weapons to the Ukrainians on day on the day before, days, weeks, months we're, before. We're, sending them, we're sending them lethal weapons right now. We're sending them a tiny amount of lethal weapons. And by the way, we're trying to figure out what can we get for it when we do it, right? Whether that's solving the corruption problem or during our political opponents, whatever side, that, sure. whatever sure. side of that debate you fall on, we, were, we, we wanted something for that, right? And by the way, we're not saying the real weapons. We're saying them, you know, some, some man portable missiles. Yes, they were very effective in Afghanistan. Agreed, right? That was... 30 years ago, all right? What we need to send them is tanks. What we need to send them is night vision goggles. We are not willing to do that. So can I just ask, I guess, so Jamil, you're identifying some near-term, short-term, decisive differences in how previous administrations have approached the Russia challenge. But getting back to what Jody was talking about, long-term looking at Russia, looking at the structural nature of their economy, how it's continuing to contract, which is one of the reasons probably why Putin felt pressure to shake up the cabinet uh, in Moscow in the first place, looking at their brain drain, looking at the demography of Russia, looking at the rate of alcoholism in Russia. So urban-rural divide, all, all of this would suggest that while Putin appears to be resurgent today, long-term, systemically, structurally, the cards are not in Russia's favor. So I think the question is actually, 
that the United States needs to play a long game, which historically we are not very good at doing nor articulating it. And I would also add that we have an election this year and in the event that there is a change in administration, this is the exact time to reclaim some sort of that we have a system that is resilient, that we have an actual democracy and that we've voted for a change in leadership, and that would be the moment to articulate a very different policy toward Russia. So I don't disagree with Jamil that at some point, the Russians, if there's a new administration, the current administration, the Russians are going to test. And every time they've tested, we have not responded in a meaningful and forceful way to them. And it doesn't mean that the United States has to engage in a conventional direct military conflict, but we have to demonstrate that we're prepared to do it. So this notion of credible threat of military force. But I also, where I part with Jamil, is it's not just about military force and readiness. Our, our, what we invest in our military and our capabilities are far superior to the Russians. Shocker, most of the countries in the Middle East and in many other parts of the world still want to buy Russian. Why is that? Um, but I think we need to think smartly about the kinds of support, soft power, the model that we set forth here in our own domestic debate, which gets to this question of rhetoric, no matter what we do, sanctions or otherwise, the rhetoric coming from the White House is totally divorced from the reality of what we do. And most people are paying attention to what we say, not what we do. Jamil, let me let me push back and point out that President Trump was elected on basically an isolationist platform. He called for pulling people back, uh, pulling our troops back, ending endless wars. President Obama, similarly, perhaps from the other side of the spectrum, campaigned on pulling back from U.S. engagement in the world. Uh, the Congress is about to send a war powers resolution that the president's going to have to veto to limit his options in Iran, right? Congress itself is not for what you're talking about. The American people tend to be voting in a more isolationist way than they were certainly in the latter half of the 20th century. So is it, is it even politically feasible to do the kind of thing you're talking about? I think it is, but in order for that to happen, leaders have to lead. And what we have in Washington, D.C. today is a complete and total lack of leadership from the top of the administration to all of Congress. Nobody wants to take aggressive positions. Nobody wants to be tough. Everyone wants to sit back and just watch it all happen. And yes, the American people are in an isolationist posture, more so than, than, than they have historically been, right? That's because we're tired of a long series of conflicts in Afghanistan, right? The long war on terror, right? The conflict in Iraq and the like. To be sure, they're tired of it. They don't like it. It doesn't mean there aren't gathering threats around the world. We've seen what's happened in Iran. We see we see what's happening with Russia. We see what's happening with China. And by the way, our enemies watch what we do. They see us backing off the world stage. They've seen it for eight years in the Obama administration. They've been watching for the last three years of the Trump administration. It is not what America needs to be doing. And that means leaders have to step up, and they're just not willing to do that today. So Jody, think, Jody, last word. So I think we, we must have differences about what it means to be backing off on the world stage. Not everything requires an aggressive military action. I would argue to you that the Obama administration actually did a fantastic job of cementing and improving U.S. relationships with its allies and with a host of other countries internationally. You may not have loved everything that they did. I would agree with you that we should have been more proactive in defending Ukraine, providing the necessary weapons for Ukraine to defend itself. But the prior administration actually did a really great job of building U.S. relationships. And we need to be looking at not just how we 
how we respond militarily, but how we build our diplomatic relationships, how we build peaceful, long-term peaceful diplomatic relationships that actually allow us to work with our friends overseas to solve problems, not just to send weapons to them. All right, let's uh, we'll conclude our Russia conversation with that. Now let's turn to the kind of our final round here. Talk about an issue that you're following that's not necessarily in the headlines. It's not impeachment. It's not Putin. It's not China. It's not coronavirus. Uh, Dana, what do you what do you? So it's at? sort of in the headlines, but not nearly as much in the headlines as it should be. Yesterday, President Trump hosted Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu in the White House for a meeting where he announced his deal of the century. So while the deal of the century was uh, immediately rejected by Palestinian leadership, it was not immediately rejected by the Arab governments across the region, nor was it endorsed, should I say, nor have all Democrats just absolutely rejected it out of line. I think everybody is waiting to see what happens next. What is not in the headlines is the kerfuffle among Israeli political leaders about annexation. So the deal, the the Trump deal, very much green lights, unilateral Israeli annexation of all settlements and all outposts in the West Bank. The question is whether or not Israel is going to do this in the next couple of days, probably by the next it, time we can. But it also suspends settlements for four years. Right? It suspends so, so new. Could this, can, so could yeah. this work against Netanyahu in the next election? I don't think so, because there's all sorts of other sprinkles and M&Ms inside this that help him build the coalition he needs to get to a unity government if he plays his cards. So are we wisely. are we interfering in Israeli politics? I have views on that, and certainly this would make for a great future podcast because there is a difference in how Democrats and Republicans approach this issue. But I digress. All right. Jamil, what are you following? So, uh, you know, the European Union uh, this week announced uh, new uh, procedures on uh, for recommendations to member countries about uh, admitting foreign technologies to 5G networks. Um, they have they have avoided an outright ban on Huawei, which is a huge issue for the United States and Australia. Uh, the UK, which is leaving the EU, um, is is in the middle of a similar process. Uh, they're going to allow Huawei in, but in a in a limited way, subject to certain regulation and and uh, and reviews and the like. It's largely where they've been historically for the last couple of years. A uh, big difference between um, between uh, nations and blocks of nations that should be united on this issue. Um, the Chinese present a strategic threat to us. Uh, Huawei, ZTE, these other providers are at the heart of that. A strategic effort. They've been um, they're in telecom networks, deep in telecom networks around the globe, particularly uh, in Africa and South America, even in parts of the U.S. Uh, it's a very uh, troubling situation, and this this difference that we have between the U.S. and the EU on this question uh, could be hugely problematic in the long run. Uh, not only as we move to five G, but as we go to the next generation of technology. Uh, now may be the time for the U.S. to consider working with Europe and figure out whether we need a national or a or a sort of Western bloc set of champions. And maybe we even need to start talking about, I dare say, as a conservative and industrial policy when it comes to this critical national security area. Jody. Right. So I saw this story pop yesterday, and I think it's uh, super interesting in the context of the conversations we've been having about China, which was the arrest by the United States of the chair of the Department of Chemistry and Chemistry Biology at Harvard, at Harvard yeah. University yeah. for hiding his relationship with China's Thousand Talents program. So this is a program 
a Chinese program designed to lure people internationally, Americans, for example, with knowledge of foreign technology to, in order to bolster China's engagement in the space and presumably to help steal uh, foreign intellectual property. And as part of this agreement that he had, he agreed to publish articles, organize conferences, and apply for patents on behalf of the Chinese university. That Chinese university is Wuhan, uh, University of Technology in China. They were paying him $50,000 a month plus $158,000 in living expenses to basically work for the Chinese government and what it seems like is to steal U.S. US technology. You've got to be a lot more vigilant. Uh, okay, the issue I'm following is uh, Central America. Another caravan formed a few weeks ago of immigrants uh, from poor Central American countries who are going to come to the United States. They were stopped at the Mexican border with Guatemala and shipped back to their home countries by Mexico. Uh, this is this is a new thing that's happening. Mexico is, uh, which has now has a leftist government, is openly working with the Trump administration on immigration issues. It's changing the dynamic. Uh, this is very different than two years ago when uh, President Trump was using the the fear of caravans as a political issue in the campaign. It didn't work. Democrats took over the House. It's, this issue has totally changed for 2020, so it's going to be it's going to be a different discussion and different headlines going into November of this year. Watch for politicians to adjust to this foreign policy change. That's it. That's a wrap. Thanks everyone for joining us. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the institute at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu. We'd like to thank Hamilton Place Strategies for production assistance, as well as the National Security Institute staff, including our own Grant, Grant Haver, who is terrific for research assistance. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks.